Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome to this week's podcast, where we look back at the big stories of the week. And as we gather around the round table this Friday morning, January 31, about 8.30, senators will soon be gathering once again for the next phase of the Senate trial of Donald J. Trump, where both sides will be arguing the case and then voting on whether or not to hear from live witnesses like former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Lamar Alexander may have decided that for us. Hard to believe anything could knock the Senate trial off the front page, but then nobody expected the shockwave that struck the nation with the tragic death of legendary NBA star Kobe Bryant, perished in a helicopter crash with his daughter Gina and seven others. And in other breaking news, while all eyes are on Iowa and the first votes cast in the 2020 Democratic primary Monday night, a global emergency has now been declared for the coronavirus with the first person-to-person case reported here in the United States. So with us to try to make some sense of it all today, Pema Levy, national political reporter for Mother Jones. Hi, Pema. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Richard Fowler, uh, host of The Richard Fowler Show and a contributor to Fox News. Hello, Richard. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning. Welcome back and joining us for the first time. Matthew Holt is a national political correspondent for the National Journal's Hotline. Hello, Matt. Welcome. Hey, it's good to be here. So let's just dive right into the Senate trial um, late yesterday evening. Lamar Alexander, retiring Lamar Alexander, senator from Tennessee, announced that uh, he was going to vote to acquit, even though Donald Trump had uh, acted inappropriately. In other words, he's guilty, but I'm not going to vote to convict him. Does that mean it's all over, Pema? I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think she so. She says with a shrug. Yes. Yeah, you know, uh there was this sort of, we, I feel like we go through these cycles where there's like this bubble of hope that like we'll actually have, you know, a witness or we'll actually like contemplate this thing. And then the thing that we all thought would happen, which is that the Republicans will rush through this as quickly as possible and then acquit um, seems to be happening. And I assume that that is what will happen today. You're not holding out hope for Susan Collins? Well, I, I think that that's the point here, right, is that basically... McConnell was able to orchestrate it so that Susan Collins can vote to have more witnesses, um, you know, maybe Mitt Romney as well. But because Lamar Alexander isn't, then, you know, those votes are sort of like token votes, right? They get to do that for the voters, but they're not actually going to uh, cause John Bolton to testify because they're not going to get over 50 votes. So they're just going through the motions today? Richard? That sounds about right. I think they're going through the motions. And I think Pem is right, is that this whole, like, what Mitch McConnell's orchestrated, he's given these three senators, Romney, 
Lisa Murkowski likely from Alaska and Susan Collins, the ability to sort of get a free vote without the vote having any real implications, right? Because the vote, even if they vote, even if there is a tie, right, this ideal and this notion that somehow, some way, a very unpolitical chief justice who's tried to remain out of politics his entire career as chief justice is going to weigh in and then break the tie seems to be a little bit unrealistic. And if he does, it then goes back to the Senate for the Senate majority to figure out how they're going to deal with it. And then they will snap back to a 53, 47 along party lines. Herein lies the problem for Republicans. I think for many of them, especially Susan Collins and some of these ones that are up in tough reelections, Lindsey Graham being one of those who's had a tough reelection as well. Nobody likes to talk about that. Um, but Jamie Harrison's doing an amazing job in his campaign in South Carolina. Is this, if when this John, this John Bolton book is going to come out, Right. John Bolton's been very clear. He will fight the White House. He'll do everything in his power to get this book out. And if this book has revelations that we did not know, if this book confirms everything that the Democratic House manager said, then Republicans are going to have some explaining to do, especially those that live in vulnerable districts. And they're going to have to be able they're going to have to be able to tell their constituents, I voted to acquit him. I voted not to allow witnesses, even though this book says the evidence is overwhelming it's damning and it's beyond a reasonable doubt. So, Matt, what about that? You uh, keep your eye on 2020, which is not just the presidential, but the Senate races as well. Um, let, let's assume that Pema and Richard, I would not disagree with them, that the vote is going to be to acquit mm -hmm. Donald Trump. There are these somewhat vulnerable Republican senators running for re-election. Do you think this could be a factor in their re-elect campaign? It will, could. will voters remember and hold them responsible? It could, but it's clear like uh, senators, like two senators, like um, Gardner and McSally, they're taking the calculation like, well, I can't lose the Trump voting base, so I need to be with him. Like they don't see that there's enough independent vote voters where maybe voting for witnesses, not, not, not even talking about voting to acquit like or convict, just to vote for witnesses would like make things tougher for them in terms of being able to get the Trump base of support. Um, I that, think it's interesting. That right? is, I'm sorry, Gardner's calculation in Colorado. Yeah, I mean, there's like there are Republicans there, and if, if he votes, to, if he votes for witnesses or to convict Trump, like he will alienate Republicans there, and he needs those to get to like mm -hmm. the 45 percent he needs to compete with John Hickenlooper. I think it's interesting. My uh, my colleague Zach Cohen, who covers the Senate uh, for National Journal, he sent me a note. Um, about he caught up with Bernie Sanders as he was leaving the Senate last night, and he had a, like a little wry smile on his face. So I think he might be a little happy with how this is playing out, not in terms of the whole impeachment, but he can get into Iowa a little bit sooner instead of having this drag on longer, and he can go on and campaign furiously the last three days before the caucus. Right. So was anything gained by this whole impeachment and trial, Emma? I mean, Democrats went into it knowing that the chances of conviction in the Senate were pretty slim. Yeah. I spent the last two months doing nothing but this. I think that there is. Um, you know, I think a, a world in which this happens and and there is no attempt to hold the president accountable, um, there's just sort of a, oh, well, we probably won't convict, so why even try? Um, I think that's a dangerous precedent, and I think that that was the feeling among a lot of Democrats was that, um, to do nothing is really to abdicate their responsibilities here. Uh, and I I do think, you know, I don't know how much, you know, as Richard said, this is going to really come back to bite Republicans quickly. Um, but I do think that the historical record is important, <laughs> um, you know, and the record of 
um, not calling any witnesses is important to ascertain, you know, whether or not there's a political price for it in any near time in the future. I, I doubt there will be. Uh, but but I think it's important to, to have gone through it um, and to have for, for one party, at least to have said, we think this um, behavior is uh, inexcusable. What I've been reflecting on uh, the last few hours is how Donald Trump is going to react, and I think we know how he's going to react to an acquittal. Um, uh, Richard, to you first. So this is a president who was investigated by a special counsel for a year uh, and found to have colluded with the Russians, even though they didn't, and obstructed justice, even though they didn't charge him with a crime, and now has been impeached and then acquitted by the Senate, it, what does that mean for the presidency? Does it's total it, exoneration. It's time to judge. No, no, but that's what, no. But you know, no collusion, no, no collusion, no, no obstruction, no impeachment. No uh, well, there was impeachment yeah. and no conviction, right? So, so there's a couple points here. I think point number one, I think it's important to realize it really depends on how, first, he's tough. He's shown that he's Teflon Don. I mean, that's what I call him because he is Teflon. Nothing seems to stick to him, even though he has a swamp cabinet. That is probably some of the most corrupt individuals, and like they've let. And what this impeachment has done um, is it's taken off the headlines all of these cabinet secretaries and the level, like whether it's Betsy DeVos sort of proliferating in for-profit colleges, whether it's Ben Carson and the sort of gutting of grants for veterans and for poor folks trying to find housing, whether it's what's happening at EPA with overturning every single environmental protection that they can in the time frame that they can do it. Those have all left the headlines now, uh, and it's only focused on the White House and what the White House does, which I think is problematic for Democrats going into this upcoming election. But with that being said, I, I mean, I think it's really going to—we we'll, have to see how this president operates. Will he feel chastened by this? Will he, you know, decide he's going to change his behavior? Or will he do the opposite and sort of be like, I'm Teflon, I can do what I want? And then I think the third calculus is how will the American voter respond to that? And, and I think part of that is sort of a— one, what happens with these primaries, but two, I think it's how the Democratic Party chooses to operate in this new world. How will they run their re-election campaign? How will they run their election campaign? Are they going to focus on this hope and optimism, or are they going to run a campaign that talks about the realities and truth of the Trump presidency? Because the realities and truth of the Trump presidency, what we've seen is we've seen more African-American folks die unarmed by police. We've seen a world where immigrants are targeted. Uh, and I think Democrats really, the strongest arguments that Democrats have, whether they choose to use it or not, is to really not even run a fear campaign, but run a reality campaign. And here's the reality. Yeah. So Matt, my question is not exclusively or just about the Trump presidency, but about the presidency itself. I mean, doesn't this, the combination of nothing happening from the Mueller report and then nothing happening from the Senate kind of say that the presidency, the president can do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah, I mean, he's totally... <laughs> as long um, as his party controls one house. And I think he will be able to fire up his supporters uh, with impeachment. I think um, there there is evidence to show that maybe this impeachment will help him because he can now... He, he's been able to, you know, he, he's raised a ton of money and now he's pouring, he's pouring money into all the battleground states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And he's able to find his voters a lot earlier than Democrats can find their voters. And there are still a lot of disaffected people out there that haven't like, that have never voted and are maybe, um, like sympathetic to Trump's anti-establishment message. Um, he could easily say, like, look, the establishment's been trying to take me down. Like, look, they couldn't beat me in the election. They couldn't impeach me like like they, this is about you like this is like 
a slap in the face to you, the regular person. So it could energize his folks uh, on the ground in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. There was a lot of time spent making the argument on the part of the Democratic impeachment managers and then the president's attorneys, uh, and then all the questions from the senators. A couple of moments, however, did stand out when I thought the managers kind of cut through um, with uh, something that will be remembered. Uh, Adam Schiff had his moment yesterday when he talked about uh, that at the same time that they are talking about whether or not they're going to convict and remove the president from office, um, his attorneys were in the court arguing that it's okay for him not to answer subpoenas or not to uh, 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 concur or cooperate, is the word I'm looking for, with Congress. Uh, let's uh, let Adam Schiff tell the story. Let me begin with something in the category of you can't make this stuff up. Today, while we've been debating whether a president can be impeached for essentially bogus claims of privilege for attempting to use the courts to cover up misconduct, the Justice Department, in resisting House subpoenas, is in court today and was asked, well, if the Congress can't come to the court to enforce its subpoenas, because as we know, they're in here arguing Congress must go to court to enforce its subpoenas, but they're in the court saying, Congress, thou shalt not do that. So the judge says, if the Congress can't enforce its subpoenas in court, then what remedy is there? And the Justice Department lawyer's response is impeachment. Impeachment. <laughs> you can't make this up. It was the only time in all of the, uh, in the entire trial that the entire Senate broke out in laughter. But uh, it was a funny moment, but it's pretty sad, too. Yeah, right, I yeah, I know. I mean, I, I think it, it They're gets... arguing both sides of this case, right? Just shamelessly. Basically. No, it, it, it totally is like, a, it's like a, a moment that basically says like, yeah, we all know what we're doing here and we're abdicating our own powers. Like we're, we're ceding our own powers uh, by saying, uh, by agreeing with the president, which is basically, you know, you, it's like a, just a cycle of like turning the president into a king, right? Like you don't have to follow a subpoena and then we don't, we can't enforce the subpoena, but we won't impeach you for not you know, obeying the subpoena <laughs> uh, because we don't think it's an impeachable offense. So you're basically just ceding all of your power. Um, and that's sort of a, a an undercurrent of, of what we've been seeing here is a Congress um, and a Republican Party that says we'd rather protect the president than like assert the prerogative of this body. Yeah. So, uh, Richard and Matt, before we get you in on this, too, the on the same line, the argument was made kind of on the other side by Alan Dershowitz. Mm -hmm. Uh, such a far-sweeping argument that even some Republicans says, whoa, let's not go that far. Uh, here is Professor Dershowitz. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Hey, anything goes, Matt. Yeah, I I was like I was watching and, and working and watching this in the background, and I heard him say that, and I like perked up. I was like, "What is he talking?" If I was a Democratic ad maker, I'd be putting that all over the place, right? You're just essentially saying that a president can just do whatever they want because they think that whatever they want is in the national interest, which is nuts I, I just don't that's a it's a crazy argument i don't 
I would, if I was running democratic ads, like this would be everywhere. It'd be digital on Facebook, on Twitter, on TV. You got to put it everywhere because you're just saying, oh, you can say, oh, the Republicans, uh, they, they're just want Trump to do whatever the hell he wants. But Richard, Donald Trump believes that. Oh, he does. And if, Matt, if, if you weren't a journalist, I would hope the Democratic Party would hire you to run these ads because yeah. you don't see these ads anywhere. And I think it speaks to part of the and I, I'm, I've been a member of the party for my entire life. Right. But it speaks to the flat footedness of where the party is right now is that our only response to this is putting out talking points and putting these floor managers in front of the cameras. But there is an argument that needs to be pushed out to Amer the American people and these disaffected voters, because that's like saying, you know, oh, if I robbed a car today and that's in the city's interest because it was in a blighted neighborhood that would justify any crime. For that matter, it would justify any elected official engaging in bad behavior. And if we know if, if our Justice Department has any record is every time a mayor has done this or a member of Congress has done this, whether it's insider trading or whatever, they've been put in jail. And it's this president that's able to sort of obfuscate all of these laws. And the fact that the Democrat, the, 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 the Senate laughed speaks to the irony of it. I mean, I hate to use the words that um, Jerry Nadler used when he said this is a cover up. And you guys are part of this cover up. And the fact that you literally have the Justice Department sitting in a federal court saying, well, if the only remedy is impeachment. And in one of the impeachment articles, the, the, the obstruction of Congress speaks to the fact that he has violated the Congress, the Congress's powers to, you know, issue subpoenas. And they're like, oh, well, we don't think there's any obstruction here. It, it, it's, it's almost laughable. And it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't add up. And by the way, Lamar Alexander said that second article of impeachment, he called it frivolous. Obstructing Congress, frivolous. Talk about abdicating your responsibility. But wouldn't you say this is like a this is a, a consequence of Congress abdicating their responsibilities for years now? I mean, they've been oh. both parties have been just shepherding power to the executive branch, and it, this was going to have it was going to come to a breaking point at some point, right? Uh, Barbara Lee, among others, has been making that point about the War Powers Act. Oh, absolutely. And a I, long I, time. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, I would hope, I mean, Pelosi is one of the best Democratic strategists that we have. She's better than anyone that you see on TV. And I hope part of her strategy, I mean, we saw a vote yesterday to block funding for Iran. And what I would hope the the House would do and least force the Senate, because I think there are, when you talk about the, the where we are as an, as an electorate, we are a very war-weary country. I think if Pelosi's, and she probably will, like, I think they should revoke the AUMF, right, and say, we're going to revoke it. Now, Senate, the senators, what are you going to do? Because right. the American people don't, don't want war with Iran. They want to get out of Afghanistan, and they surely want to be out of Iraq. So what's the plan here? Because there has to be some offense against a president that's willing to do whatever he can to win, um, and the proof is in the pudding. Before we move on from the Senate trial, uh, it could, it, I'd just love to get your comment on what you think the chances are that if this vote, maybe later today, probably later today, turns into turns out to be a tie, 50-50, what will John Roberts, Chief Justice, John, the presiding judge, do? Do you think there's any chance that he will say, I'm a judge, I want to hear the witnesses? It would be unprecedented for John Roberts to engage in that behavior. We've never seen a moment where he's sort of stuck his foot into the politics of it all. And if he does... The question will be, how will the Republican Senate, who appointed him, respond? Will they overrule the chief? I mean, it's, it would be... They could. That's, that's a yeah, they point, could. They over, could vote to overrule They him. could vote to overrule him. But, but didn't he, on the Affordable Care Act, he voted? Well, I think he voted for that because he realized if he had voted the opposite way, then the courts would have been embroiled in the politics. So he voted to sort of 
let's keep it the way to the Sith. Let's call this a tax. He found a funny loophole sort yeah. of side street to take to get to his his decision. What do you think, Matt? I, I haven't been in Washington long, admittedly. I would be shocked if he if he inserted himself into this. I don't see it happening. We could make his and if he did make his name forever, Pema. Yeah, and I, it it would. Uh, I don't I don't think he's gonna do it either. <laughs> it, it yeah, it's not. I I will say one thing. So much of of the conservative majority on the Supreme Court and John Roberts' opinions lately have to do with this isn't for the courts. If Congress wants to fix this, they should. And I don't think that this overseeing this trial will actually change John Roberts, but it really does give him an up close view of the the body that he keeps referring all the plaintiffs back to, right? When he keeps saying, don't come to us, go to Congress, let them fix it. And it's like, yeah, these these are the guys that you're leaving everything up to. You've, you've been hanging out with them for two weeks now. He did show one little streak of independence when he refused to, to read Rand Paul's question. Yeah. Which would have unveiled the name of the original whistleblower, who is, by the way, irrelevant now in this trial. So I think it was the right decision, but so it was a gutsy move on Robert's part. Give yeah. me credit for that. Well, he also just wasn't letting himself get played. Yeah, right. and, and I mean, I think it was. He's also he's, he also seemed very uncomfortable reading the Trump tweets that he had to read out loud. So <laughs> I think that you know, listen, if he decides to break this tie, it will be Shonda Rhimes couldn't write a better episode of Scandal. Um, for real, <laughs> and, and it, it, I think it would. Truth be told, it would actually give him a lot of popularity with the American people. He would probably be the most popular person in Washington if he was like, I'm going to break this tie because, for God's sakes, there has to be some common sense here and let's uh, avoid the politics. I don't think it's going to happen. I, I will give John Roberts a little bit of credit for uh, reading uh, Elizabeth Warren's question to him um, about just questioning the legitimacy of the chief justice. I, yeah, I don't know if I could have like read like if someone was like, "Hey, that guy Matt Holt, National Journal, is bad and does he's not legitimate at all." Like, I don't know if I could have read that with a straight face. So I got to give him props for that. Yeah, good. Uh, let's. <laughs> all right, the trial. We'll see what happens, and we uh, we have your prognostications. Uh, let's take a quick break here with the roundtable: Richard Fowler, Pema Levy, and Matthew Holt, uh, and we'll uh, hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back. <laughs> And today's roundtable brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, uh, one of the largest, most active, and most diverse unions in the country, all under the leadership of President Mark Perone. They represent workers in many different industries, including, listen to this, the large grocery chains, retail stores, packing and processing, chemical workers, distilleries, and even cannabis growers and outlets, all under the UFCW. Check out their website at UFCW. Org. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And here we are back with the roundtable, Pema Levy, Richard, uh, Mother Jones, Richard Fowler, a Fox News contributor and the Richard Fowler Show, and Matthew Holt with the National Journal and the National Journal's hotline. Um, what can we say about the tragic, I mean, it, the tragic loss of Kobe Bryant, it really did stun the nation. Uh, and, um, and what a wonderful person Kobe Bryant was, not that he didn't have some problems, as we learned about, but uh, an exemplary player, exemplary father, exemplary role model for young kids. Richard, just uh, so tragic on so many levels. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing that came to mind is, like, just imagine that last moment on the helicopter knowing oh. that not only are you going down, but your daughter's going with you. I think that was really telling. And I, and I think this is a very interesting death, right? Because this is the first death for the millennial generation. This is the first celebrity that we sort of grew up with. Like, I remember when Kobe Bryant went to prom with Brandy and how big of a deal that was. And so he was the first celebrity that sort of belonged to the millennial generation. And so millennials all across this country are taking this really hard because he's somebody who we looked up to. He's somebody who was a great player on and off the court. Um, and, and, you know, I think it, it, going back to the last segment, he speaks to what brings us all together, right? Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, everybody respected Kobe Bryant and the black, the black community respected him. The Caucasian community, everybody respected yeah, him right. for what he did and for how he was a father to his daughters and a wife to his and a, and a, and a husband to his wife and a great player on and off the court. And so this is definitely going to be sad. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be some some tears shed. And when we see this funeral, which will probably be very public, I'm assuming it'll be in yeah. the Staples Center. And, and you know, what I, one, another thing I loved about him coming from L.A. is that he, you know, he went to L.A. and he stayed in L.A. Right? Yeah. And he, Franchise he, player. Yeah. Right. You know, and he made his home there. And that was his wasn't one of these bounce around from city to city looking for the best deal. Any comments, Matt? Or? I mean, I, I'm from Rhode Island. Um, I'm a huge Boston Celtics fan. So Kobe Bryant has broke my teenage heart more times <laughs> than I'd like. But, you know, when I got the news, it really hit me hard. And, um, you know, I didn't think, because I spent my whole, like, fandom, my whole life just, like, hating on him. But, like, when you think about it, like, he was he was awesome player, Um I, I really respected his intellectual curiosity um, and he was yeah. very curious about leadership. He would cold call all these people and just pick their brains. And I really respected that, but um, he was really fun to root against. 
you know, because you knew he was he was so good and he yeah. was a killer on the court. And, you know, he just I, I still remember in 2010 him making me cry after they beat the Celtics in the finals. And it was just like, is Kobe. I mean, he's one of the greatest. Um, it really it really hit me hard, harder than I thought. 60 points in his last game mm. yeah. on 50 right. shots, though. Come on. On another topic, the, the World Health uh, Organization has declared the coronavirus now a global emergency. Should we be frightened here? It is headed our way. I mean, uh, I'm not a health official. I'm. I would say I'm stay calm. Just wash your hands. Just keep washing your hands wherever you go. But, it, you know, when they're bringing American citizens out of China, right, and, uh, now, and now we have one case in the United States, um, the first person-to-person contact uh, in Chicago. Yeah, I think stay calm, right? Don't panic. But it's certainly something to consider, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor on this issue, but I do think that some of the – reporting on what happened in China is that they didn't take it seriously, um, that there's yeah. not a culture of quickly jumping on problems. It's instead, let's like suppress the problem and hope it goes away. And when it comes to yeah. uh, contagious deadly virus, se- that's a bad idea. And so I, I, you know, I hope that the actions that our government has taken are out of precaution and not because we all have to panic. I, I, I hope that it's because that's the responsible thing to do. Um, and, and the reason we got to where we are now is that, uh, people in power didn't do the responsible thing. Right. And I think the CDC so far has been making, uh, the right moves. Okay. Monday night, Iowa caucuses. Um, before we get to the question about why the hell are we paying so much attention to Iowa and how much longer are we going to continue this silly game? What's going to happen, Matt? I'm not going to make any predictions. I haven't been a reporter for that long. I'm not going to ruin my credibility already. (laughs) Well, but so it's, everybody says it's going to be Bernie's going to just run away with it. I mean, that's what the polls suggest, but also there's an argument to be made that um, Biden could do fairly well because if the turnout was high, um, Biden has a lot of supporters that aren't likely to caucus, but if turnout was high, that could also be really good for him. Right. Uh, How do you read it? I tend to agree with the analysis. I mean, in a world where, in in some precincts where uh, Amy Klobuchar doesn't get enough votes or Pete Buttigieg doesn't get enough votes, all those votes are neither of those votes will go to Warren or Bernie. They're going to go directly to Biden, which gives Biden a good chance. I think what I will predict is there will be multiple tickets out of Iowa. They usually expect one or two tickets out of Iowa. If you take, if I'm a good prognosticator, I would say there might be three or four tickets out of Iowa. Um, and, and, and you know, I think we should have longer conversation about why why the I was irrelevant. But yeah, we will. <laughs> but I think if, if I were making a prediction, I think it's going to be a good night for Bernie, a decent night for Biden, probably a bad night for either Elizabeth Warren and or Mayor Pete or Amy Klobuchar, that second tier can those second tier candidates. Uh, and Emma, it looks like Bernie has just gotten stronger and stronger. I mean. Since his heart attack, since Elizabeth Warren surged and looked like she was pushing him out of place, you know, he's come back with a vengeance. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And his supporters are the kind who will, damn it, they'll go after that caucus and they'll sit there all night long if they have to, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's sort of part of what's maybe a little bit perverse about a caucus is that it's not just 
who each person wants to vote for. It has to do with their energy and their persuasiveness and her unwillingness to, you know, go to another side and their, you know, willingness to really, really push other people to join their side. And so there's all of these like interpersonal um, dynamics that go on uh, at a caucus that very much favor uh, Bernie Sanders. And so you're right. I mean, the polls have shown him um, steadily moving up over the last month. And, you know, on top of that, he has exactly the kind of supporters you want um, in this type of voting. So on the question of Iowa, by the way, for caucuses, I, I think caucuses, no matter what, I think they're fundamentally undemocratic and they ought to, we ought to do away with them. I'll I just throw that out there. But on Iowa, for sure, why start in Iowa? So David Leonard had a great column in the, in the uh, New York Times a couple of, couple of days ago. If you look at Iowa by population, by municipality size, Iowa and New Hampshire have no cities above 250,000 people. If you look at by race and ethnicity, um, in the United States, nationwide, African-American, 13%, Hispanic, 18%. In Iowa and New Hampshire, African-American, 3%, Hispanic, 6%. Why Iowa? Why Iowa and New Hampshire? It's well, a bad tradition that we need to, and, and you know, this goes back to how I feel about the party. As much as I love the party, I think this is a moment, especially in this election. This is both parties. Touche, but I think for the Republicans, I understand why they go to Iowa. It makes sense for them. <laughs> right. um, but, I think, point, right. but, but I think for, for the Democratic Party, if you're a party that proclaims to be a big tent, you're a party that, you know, profit, like who's literally, you profit the idea, like you're profits to this ideal that if we all come together, we can make America strong. Iowa should not be your first time out. It should not be your first race, right? It should be a place like Michigan. It should be a place. I'm not saying you go to one of the biggest like Florida or Texas or California, but why not a Michigan? Why not a Wisconsin? Why not a Minnesota where you're going to get a better mix of what the Democratic Party actually looks like? Mm -hmm. uh, will the, Matt, do you believe for various reasons, the, uh, the outcome of the Iowa caucuses have as much impact, as much importance this year as it has in the past? I think it's too early to tell. Um, it's Monday night. <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I know, but um, I don't know. Um, I think if there's because you got South Carolina coming up, right? exactly. So I think and Nevada, Nevada could be the decider. I think because if uh, Bernie and Biden, if, if Bernie and Biden's close in Iowa, and we assume that Bernie will win New Hampshire because he carried it last time, it really could Nevada could be the the, the big one to look out for, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, now we have uh, this other guy in the background we haven't talked about. The Super Bowl is this weekend. There are going to be two ads, political ads, in the Super Bowl. One by Donald Trump, who's got all the money in the world, and the other by the other billionaire, who's got all the money in the world as well, Michael Bloomberg. Donald Trump's ad is a, look at all the great things I've done. America's stronger than it's ever been because of me. Michael Bloomberg curiously, I think, is his ad, let's listen to it, it's all about an issue that he cares a lot about and has spent a lot of money on. George started playing football when he was four years old. He would wake up every Saturday ready for the game. That became our life. He had aspirations about going to the NFL. On a Friday morning, George was shot. George didn't survive. I just kept saying, you cannot tell me that the child that I gave birth to is no longer here. 
lives are being lost every day. It is a national crisis. I heard Mike Bloomberg speak. He's been in this fight for so long, he heard mothers crying, so he started fighting. When I heard Mike was stepping into the ring, I thought, now we have a dog in the fight. I know Mike is not afraid of the gun lobby. They're scared of him, and they should be. Mike's fighting for every child, because you have a right to live. No one has a right to take your hopes and dreams. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Pretty powerful stuff, especially in the Super Bowl round, huh? Yeah, no, totally. I think, you know, look, <laughs> it's great to have the money, right? Uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, that's what we're seeing here. It's got to be one of the most, ex- you know, expen- most expensive ad buy oh, totally. of the yeah. year. And and they're both in it. Uh, but I, I do think it's an interesting contrast. Look, I think that the Trump ad is a smart ad. Like, that's that's their best argument, right? It's the... That's the appealing to the widest audience. It doesn't have the word witch hunt in it, right? It doesn't call, talk about fake news. It it just reminds people that the economy is doing pretty well. I think they kind of overstate the case. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's an ad about, you know, the economy is great. It's going to get even better. And then you have this other side, um, which I think is really interesting, which is basically like, what about all of these other things um, that this president doesn't want to be measured on? Granted, it's not... Trump's fault that this particular person was shot, Um, you know, but hey, there's a lot of other stuff going on and we should think about that when we vote too. And I I think that those are two interesting and contrasting messages. But to make that choice, Richard, to say I'm going to, you know, he knows that the gun control issues, you talk about the third rail, right? He's going to do that in the biggest television audience in the whole freaking world. It's smart. Uh, I'll say that. I think for far too long, Democrats have been afraid of hitting the third rail because of like, well, what happens if we do it? And I think Bloomberg, probably he's pulled the hell out of this, uh, as anybody would. He's realized that maybe the third rail is actually how we win this election. I'm not saying that I'm a Bloomberg person, but I think there's some sense in this, right? Because I think Prima brings up a good point is, yes, the economy is doing well. But like I said in the last segment, there's all these other things that are horrible. I mean, they're this year parents bought more bulletproof backpacks for their kids than ever. And this president, he's on record saying after Park, after the Parkland shooting, which is just on the street from where I grew up, right, that he was going to do something and he, we're going to fix this and we're going to get tough. And all that we've had is milk toast. So I think that there's an argument to be made by Bloomberg and others, like the economy is doing well. And guess what? Anybody can shepherd a good economy. But what about all the other problems happening in America? And it's about time that somebody lift. Uh, and I think if Democrats are going to win this election, whether it's Bloomberg or another candidate, it can't be about throwing a lot of big policy solutions around. It has to be about America. The economy is doing well, but this president has failed on every every other thing. And that's why you vote against him. So, Matt, I began. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, too, you know, I think, yeah, like a few years ago, you know, running on gun control would have been considered suicide. But at the same time, I mean, this is a good ad. And it, it Mike Bloomberg doesn't say this young man was killed and therefore I'm going to go door to door and take all your guns. away. <laughs> it's there's no policy prescription in it at all. Um, it, it's not like a, a scary like, you know, you better hold on to your guns because I'm coming for them. It's just sort of like this common sense, like maybe we shouldn't live in a world where kids are getting shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's like the least scary and controversial way to like approach this issue is just to appeal to the emotionality of it, um, but not put forward any sort of scary policy prescription. It, it basically says Trump and the NRA are on the side of, of kids getting shot. I'm not. Um, and it, it sort of leaves the prescription for later. Right. So, Matt, 
Um, it makes me wonder whether or not I originally just dismissed uh, Bloomberg, you know, as this guy billionaire is going to spend all his money and, and get nowhere, but that maybe there's a path for him that yeah. if Biden particularly stumbles that Bloomberg could emerge. You know, he, he he's you, a billionaire. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, but he's a billionaire with credibility. He served three terms as New York mayor. He spent a lot of money um, in 2018 getting Democrats elected up and down the ballot. If you look at his ad campaign, it's the 2018 Democratic messaging. It's gun control and health care. Now, like like Pema said, that was a, a great observation that it's not prescribing a, a it's not prescribing anything to cure gun control, but that's what the those um frontline Democratic members ran on in large part. They ran on on gun control. And this is gonna be the first election where um like gun control groups are gonna spend more than the NRA, which is stark. I can't remember that in my happening in my lifetime. Um but you know, Bloomberg is essentially right now um acting like a super PAC. Um, he, his, his messaging is really generic. Like if Bernie Sanders sh should feel very lucky right now that Mike Bloomberg is not shifting his, his millions of dollars of ads into attacking him. Cause that could have some effect. Look, right. um, a national poll came out today has Bloomberg at 9%. Um, he, he could creep up into the 10, 12, 13, if someone drops out after Iowa and he can really make the top four candidates work hard in, on Super Tuesday. So keep your eyes on Bloomberg. Okay, we all we always ask you to bring a favorite story of the week with you. Uh, something just caught your attention, serious, not so serious, off the wall, Richard. Oh right, um, for me this was a simple one, uh, and it was an easy choice. It was the South Carolina Senate race, uh, and Jamie and Jamie Harrison. What Jamie Harrison is doing down there, mind you, um, Lindsey Graham hasn't been home in quite a long time. Uh, and Jamie Harrison is running a really good campaign. He's doing real, he's fundraising very well. And the truth of the matter is that Lindsey's going to have to get home soon because he's really going to have to, he's never had to come campaign for this seat. It's always just a given that Lindsey's going to win. But now Lindsey's going to have to go home and he's going to have to face South Carolina voters. And a lot of these South Carolina voters are retired military folk. And he used to be able to run this bunch of like, John McCain's my best friend. But he's voted against John McCain's, and God rest his soul, his interest, 90% of his voting record. And he's sort of flip-flopped on the president. First, he called the president racist and evil. Now he thinks the president's the greatest leader. And so I think Lindsey Graham is in a lot of trouble. Uh, and it's going to be fun to watch it. It's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. Pema. Uh So speaking of the Super Bowl, uh, <laughs> I thought you were about to blow my story, but you oh, didn't quite. No. Um, so the halftime show is uh, J-Lo uh, and Shakira. And I saw a press conference with them talking about how their message is going to be about diversity and, you know, that in this American um, sport event, um, you know, where they're also going to be celebrating the contributions of Latinas and the fact that they're two women. And so I do think you're going to have this. I'm really interested in how they're going to portray that and if they're sort of if it actually is going to have some sort of elements of honoring Hispanic culture and Latino culture Um and I just, I just think, you know, on top of what we were just talking about with, um, you know, these two political ads, you know, for better or worse, it's hard to just have a sports event these days that it has to be about, <laughs> right. you know, something bigger. But I, I also think that I'm, I'm just excited to see how that all plays out. And uh, I can't say I'm going to watch the football part, but I'll probably watch the halftime. <laughs> That'll be, uh, so there's another reason to watch the Super Bowl, right? Hi, Matt. Did anyone see what happened to the New York Knicks on Wednesday night? The New York Knicks. Got okay. No. So the New York Knicks, uh, the whole crowd was chanting, sell the team before the game. 
So that's a mess because James Dolan's a terrible sports owner. Then they got blown out uh, at towards the end of regulation. Uh, one of their players just absolutely clocks a guy trying to shoot a three. There's like a brawl. It's like there's like four seconds left on the clock. There's a brawl, right? So that ends. They split that up. In the press conference after, Marcus Morris, who's one of their best players, said the guy who got hit was showing female-like tendencies. So he just slandered women. And then and then a report came out that Ja Morant, who they were playing the Grizzlies, who was their best player, was saying that there was no hot water in the Knicks locker room after the game. It might have been, might have been the worst 24 hours in the history of the New York Knicks. Um, and that's saying a lot because it's it's the Knicks, you know. So. I sense uh, a Bostonian in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we live for the days no. of Patrick Ewing. I, I look. I I'm very forthright with my bias towards New York sports. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so for my favorite story, I'm back to the Super Bowl. I mean, a lot of dimensions to this uh, Super Bowl. Uh, there's going to be another ad on the Super Bowl. Coca-Cola is announcing a great brand new product that has been quietly making its way on the shelves, but they haven't promoted it at all. They're doing so in the Super Bowl. It's a new Coke. It's called Coke Energy that has more caffeine than, like, you can believe. It has 114 mg is a microgram whatever milligram right of caffeine compared to the average coke has 34 this is 114 so it's sort of like red bull but it got me thinking about i'm old enough to remember the last time that coke introduced a new product was back in i look it up 1985 the new coke they they said they're going to get rid of the old coke have the new coke they announced it on april 23rd 1985 it's been called the biggest marketing blunder of all time because the American public said, no, we don't want this new Coke. We like the old Coke. They stopped making the old Coke right away. Two months later, they dropped the new Coke and they went back to making the old Coke. So I just hope that that's they... That's why it's called classic, right? Yeah, classic. I think that's yeah, why it's called right. classic now. Yeah. Uh, I just hope that they do a little better with the rollout of the uh, of this this new Coke than they, than they did with the last one. It'll be... Uh, It'll be fun to watch. And with that, uh, thank you all panelists. Um, thanks, Pema. Great to see you. And congratulations. We have to mention that Pema oh. just got married. So congratulations. Oh, thank Our you. Our newlywed hey. member of the panel. Richard Fowler, good to have you with us again. Good to be here. And Matt, it's great to have you here. Hope, you, hope right. you'll come back. I hope my debut wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let the uh, listeners decide that. Uh, I would say absolutely not. Good to have you here. Survivor uh, style here. <laughs> right. Uh, let me finish with a quick parting shot, which I always add is an, uh, my comments are not necessarily those of the members of our panel. I'm going to go back to the Senate trial that unless, of course, you've been living on another planet, you know, we've been watching history made over the last couple of weeks for only the second time in our lifetime. The Senate is on trial. Yes, you heard that right. I didn't misspeak. Donald Trump's not the only one on trial. The entire Senate is on trial, especially Republican senators are, are on trial to see if they'll live up to the oath that they took as jurors to see, frankly, if they'll just do their job. And what is that? Their job is no more than what you and I are asked to do every time we're called for jury duty, to put aside any bias, to keep an open mind, to weigh the evidence, and then to make a decision based on the facts. Unfortunately, it's already clear that many Republican senators, perhaps the majority, refused to do their job. Several, led by Mitch McConnell himself, actually announced they were going to vote to acquit Donald Trump before even one word of evidence was heard. 
And most of the others have said, Lamar Alexander just being the latest, that they're not even willing to listen to the evidence, not even to John Bolton, former National Security Advisor, who says the president is lying. But these senators don't want to know the truth. Either they're too tired or they just don't care or they're afraid of crossing Trump in any way, even if they're leaving office. But in the end, it won't be Donald Trump again. It'll be history who judges them. If not in this trial, someday, somehow, all the truth is going to come out. And history will judge whether today's Republican senators stand up for the Constitution and the rule of law, or whether they cave in and sacrifice their souls on the altar of Donald Trump. Yep, the Senate is on trial, and it looks like they already flunked test. That's my uh, parting shot for today. That is our today's roundtable. Again, thanks to the panel, and thanks to all of you for listening. And we remind you again, wherever you, to please subscribe to the uh, Bill Press Pod. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, just uh, go to Bill Press Pod again, click on subscribe, and you are in appreciate that very much. And if you really want to put a smile on our face while you're there, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us grow the podcast every week. And we also remind you, you can follow me on Twitter, at Bill Prescott, at Bill Prescott, and that way you will get advance notice of every upcoming podcast. That's it for now. That's a wrap. Thanks again to the panel. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Prescott Pod.